Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we celebrate Your greatness this morning. Lord, Your greatness is evidenced in the world around us as our eyes are open to creation each day in the small corner of this world, Lord, and indeed the window we see into the heavens. Lord, the creativity of the sovereign God, Creator of heaven and earth, is on display for our eyes to see if only they are open to the truth of this universe that witnesses to Your greatness. And Father, when we look inside at the life we once lived, at the desires we once were bound to, at the slavery of sin that once entangled us with, Lord, fetters that chained us to a hell-bent eternity, and we, we see, Lord, that in our life and testimony You have loosed us from the enslaving mechanisms of Satan, hell, death, and the grave. We rejoice in the greatness of our God that You have set us free. He who is set free, Lord Jesus, owes His freedom to Christ and Christ alone. And we worship You, Lord, when we think of Christ, the incarnate Son of God and second person of the Trinity, born to a woman and revealed as God with us, preaching, teaching the kingdom, and ultimately laying His life down, the Lamb that was slain, the Lamb of God, led to the slaughter. And there the greatness of God and our atonement was on display. But He was risen again, and with Him, everyone in Him, to life eternal. And so we praise You, Lord, for the assurance of our salvation, the assurance of eternity, for Your providential government of all of history, and for even Your safekeeping, bringing us, Lord Jesus, free from calamity to worship You together this morning. Today we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ this globe over who worship you under distress and adversity, under the threat of sword and death. Lord, they worship you not because it is safe to do so, but they worship you because you are great and worthy of praise. Help us not to take, Lord, the peace that we enjoy for granted. Help us to offer it to you back in praise and bind us together with your church over this whole globe and all of history that has learned that you are worthy of praise. So whether we are in famine and peril, in distress or sword, or whether we are free and prosperous, we ought to lift to you songs of worship. and We ought to proclaim your word with as many breaths as you give, Lord, in order that you might be honored and magnified on the praises of your people. I pray this morning as we open your scriptures that your spirit would guide and instruct us, console and equip us, and fill our lives with obedience and zeal to carry out the precepts and commands that we see there. I pray, Lord, that as you use this service, it would bring glory to your name, so not the hearer nor the deliverer of this message in a human way would get any praise, any glory, but only you, Jesus and all that you might be lifted up and magnified in this service in our lives. In your holy name we pray. Amen. This morning, at the close of the week, pondering and thinking about the persecuted church as it is a theme of our message today, it strikes me afresh what a privilege it is to worship together Relatively free, extremely free in fact, 
from the high cost of our own blood or the danger of being imprisoned for doing so. God has given us in this land, at least in this provisional window, the freedom to meet together as His church, unencumbered by the threat of imprisonment or death for worshiping His great name. There are many in His church today who cannot say the same, yet still gather for worship. There are some areas today on the globe where churches have been destroyed and under harsh climatic conditions, the people of God meet together in the snow outside and worship and praise the God who is worthy. In church history, I would remind you this morning as martyrdom and suffering for Christ's name and gathering together to do what we're doing today under any circumstance and are calling to do so because Christ is worthy. Because of this theme, I want to remind you of those in our Christian lineage who have gone before, who have stood on rivers between the border of two nations on frozen ice and worshipped together because it was illegal to do so on either bank. I want to remind you of huddles of people who gathered together in the warmth and stood in the cold to hear the proclamation of the words that we will soon read and did so shivering, suffering under harsh Winters akin to Minnesota, climate conditions that we experience because Christ is worthy and because of the great privilege to join in worship that is represented in the call to meet and to worship the Lord each Lord's Day. I hope that in your heart and in mine is stirred such a zeal through the delivery of this word today and in our growing sanctification in Christ that we stop treating church as an option, and start embracing it, the meeting of God's people, as the great privilege it truly is. These are the convicting conclusions, among others, that I am led to upon reading Psalm 44 more closely. Let me give you a title, and in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of a portion of Psalm 44. The title of this morning's message is, Abel's Blood Singing. Abel's Blood Singing. The title for this message comes from Genesis 4, verses 8 through 10, where God calls out to Cain, who had just slain his brother in cold blood, the first murder of the human race by the first two children, by the first parents. And these two children uh, were found there in this situation, one dead and one alive. Abel had been murdered, the first martyr, you could say, because of bringing an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. His brother killed him for that very act, and so Abel's blood cried out for justice from the ground. And if Abel's blood could sing, I wonder what it would sound like. And I submit to you, Psalm 44 is a good suggestion. Stand with me this morning and let us read from Psalm 44 and learn again of the martyr's estate in these verses. Psalm 44, we're going to read through... Excuse me, verse 9 through 26. Word of God says to us, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. 
All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has turned back, has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 23, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The author of Psalm 44, we don't know who he was, but we know that he was familiar from these words we've just read with the martyr's estate. The condition and the circumstances, the environment and the heart of one who would be called to give perhaps his life for his faith and indeed his, certainly, at least his convenience his home, his family perhaps, his relationships, the familiarity and plans that he had made, the peaceful and hopeful dreams that every family prays will be the unfolding of their happy ever after. These were all called to be laid down as sacrifices for the privilege of worshiping the one true God in the context of Psalm 44. We're reminded of the first martyr Abel and his blood that cried out from the ground. Perhaps it sounded like this. In Psalm 44, after the Selah in verse 8, which is prefaced by a covenantal remembrance of God's great works in history, it's followed by this lament that we have just read. Verse 8 reads, In God we have boasted continually. When the author invokes the pronoun we, he counts himself among God's people, Those who are covenantally associated, set apart, are among the people of God. In God we have boasted continually. We have given thanks to your name forever. That is to say that the binding elements of their communion, union, and identity of this people group was not in what they had done and what they had planned, but indeed ultimately and significantly, substantially in what God had done, what God had called them out of, what God had called them to, and what God had promised them through the patriarchs eternally, indeed forever. That God would make of Abraham a great nation, and so to Abraham and his lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed of the promise would flourish and bloom into the redemptive history that would eventually bring the Messiah. And this faith and what was to come was what bound this community that worshipped even under these challenging circumstances where their lives at times and certainly their convenience was required of them, the psalmist and company, this was the context with which this psalm was offered. After, the na- after this verse, verse 8, In God we have boasted continually, we give thanks to your name forever. 
This covenantal remembrance of the providential history of God and prologue is interrupted by a musical and thematic cue, Selah. We give thanks to your name forever, Selah. And at that word, there's a shift in tone, a dramatic shift in tone. The next verse is the first verse of our reading earlier. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. The experience of the psalmist has dramatically changed from the history that was recounted to him of days past. He has now experienced with God's people defeat and the armies have not gone out victorious but indeed have experienced the threat and the uh, utter rout of the enemy as they have been defeated in war and then dispersed in exile, presumably. So after the Selah in Psalm 44, 8, we have this unfolding prophetic hymn I want to submit to you of the persecuted church. This psalm occurs before, or comes a little, if you could say it, before its time. It is a representative plea pre-recorded in the psalms for the suffering people of God in all ages who are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The installment of this song in the Psalter is empirical evidence indeed of the compassion of the Lord on those who endure anguish and affliction for His namesake in this veil of tears. This sound, as it were, of Abel's blood singing gives the persecuted church under duress in any age, under any circumstance, a soundtrack, a song. It gives them a voice for their anguish and their fears. It allows them to express their heart that is wrestling so with the dire consequences of following Christ, even when their life itself is required of them. It gives them thoughts to think, ponder and meditate on, songs to sing, Mournful notes to raise to the Lord in lamentation, honesty, worship. These words foretell and anticipate the conditions and context of the early church, which were often dominated in the first and second centuries, on even into the third, often dominated by imperial powers, making war with Christ and by extension His church. And you can bet that the early church often included in its singing Psalm 44, because perhaps today was the day, this Lord's Day was the day, when the door would be beaten down and a regiment of Roman soldiers would come in and they would be chained together in a line to join their partners in Christ, their brothers and sisters in the Lord who had gone before them to the prisons. Psalm 44 answers the question, what is the sound of Abel's blood. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. What is the sound of Abel's blood? I mentioned this briefly. Let me read specifically these words. Genesis 4, 8 through 10. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. Earlier in this same chapter, Genesis 4, in the course of time, Cain brought, this is verse 3, to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And after this, Cain in his jealousy and his anger and animosity slew his brother. And thus we have the first murder and the first martyr of the people of God. And we hear the cry of Abel's blood, crying out for justice, reaching our ears, I submit to you, in Psalm 44. Perhaps his blood that cried out metaphorically from the ground that reached the ears, begging for the justice of a righteous God to intervene on his behalf, sang to the ears of God Almighty like Psalm 44, 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten our spoil. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations just like Abel had brought an acceptable offering, had slaughtered this animal on the altar of the Lord. Now he was called to indeed give his very life at the hand of his sinful brother. And so now the blood of his sacrifice and his sacrificed blood both cried out from the ground for justice. We hear the cry reach our ears and it moves us, it ought to, move us to consider the plight and the plea of our persecuted Brothers and sisters in Christ, even today, does it bother us that there are those who are falling by the sword, falling by the automatic weapon, by the bomb, by the IED, by the rocket-propelled grenade today, unjustly so, displaced from their homes, wandering about by the millions, perhaps, estranged from peace and calm and circumstances that we all covet and, if we have it, often take for granted, yet they are on the run for one reason and one reason alone. For the sake of the name that they worship, they are killed all the day long and are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Does it trouble us? Does it bother us? Does it cause us to lose any sleep? Does it move us to pray? And to cry out with Psalm 44, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us. Your church forever. After all, are we not bound to them? Are we not also the body of Christ bound to those who are suffering for His name this globe over? Can we feel their affliction? Can we express solidarity with their oppression? Is our soul bowed down to the dust as we consider that justice is outstanding? We know there will be a reckoning. We know the balances will one day be righted. But it is the unified cry and heart and legitimate offering of worship to bring to the Lord the anguish of waiting for justice. The pain of waiting 
for God to intervene to show himself powerful, to rout his enemies, to establish his kingdom over those who declare premature victory against it by the sword and by slaughter in the meantime. Abel's blood is singing from Psalm 44. Are we joining the chorus? A heading for you, analyzing the anguish of Psalm 44. First of all, let's consider under this heading a documentation of grievances. There is a catalog of atrocities that are listed for us in verses 9 through 16, and then we'll jump to 19. You have rejected us and disgraced us and have gone out with our armies, verse 9. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long our disgrace, my disgrace, is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Verse 19 then reads in descriptive synopsis, Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. And covered us with the shadow of death. This is the documentation of the grievances that the author of this psalm brings before the Lord. As he stands in the court of appeal, he knows that these things are legitimate atrocities. They are wrongs against the holiness of God. He has incurred in part in his flesh and in the experience of those who stand alongside him in faithful worship of the Lord, he has incurred the anger, the injustice, the animosity, and the crimes against the Holy One of Israel in his very person. He says in verse 9 and 10 that this catalog of atrocities includes defeat in war. They have been overrun by warring factions, a people who, under God's Law and according to his word would seek to live peaceably and be a blessing and a light to their neighbors have now been unjustly routed and for no good reason, for no just cause displaced from their homeland at the threat of force. So political force is brute power and imperial forces have risen up and armies have waged war against God's people unjustly so and have committed murder in so doing. The national interests of, part of nation A versus nation B are not justified simply because they're passed in parliament, because they are voted on in legislation endorsed by popular opinion. No, there is no just cause for war unless it's found immutably in the Holy Scriptures and the ethical standards of the Word of God. And if it is not found there, be it us or any nation who wage it, indeed it is the sin of murder. And so this defeat and war was a plea to the Lord that He would justly bring retribution against the enemy of His nation because they had been defeated in war. Not just that, but in verse 10, we see that their property has been plundered. You've turned us back from our homes and the things that we, have own, that, that we did own 
and rightfully so, that we had worked hard to retain according to your law, they have turned into spoil and war trophies for our enemies. Defeat in war, property plundered, they've been injured and killed, verse 11. Verse 11 goes on to say they've been exiled and displaced, verse 12. Enslaved, exploited, disgraced. Verse 13, slandered, reviled, dishonor. Their reputation destroyed, liable, wreaked against them. Verse 14, cursed, mocked, humiliated. Verses 15 and 16, protracted abuse and hardship summarizes some of what they've had to endure all day long. Verse 15, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. This is a trial of some endurance that these people have been called to withstand underneath. Verse 16, at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And then we have this synopsis in verse 19, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. This term jackals in the original Hebrew can also be translated as a sea serpent, as a dragon. It's a general term used in this context for wild beasts. There's these places that are worthy habitats only for the most crazy and wild of animals, the most remote corners of wilderness where only wild beasts will dwell unless those who are forced to take refuge out in these extremities will make their home there. These are the kind of conditions that the psalmist has had to endure. We're reminded of these conditions in the book of Job, chapter 30, verse 29. Job describes the company of his circumstances as fellowship as with the same word, wild beasts. In Mark 13, 1, Jesus, as he enters his temptation, goes to a place of wilderness. And the context of that environment is brought to bear in the narrative and it's described as a place of wild beasts. It's a place where it's inhabited by forces dangerously gathered on all sides, waiting for the moment to pounce. If you think in your mind of one of those pictures or documentaries, where you have a herd of animals that group together because they're vulnerable, so they seek for protection in numbers. But then lurking in the distance around them are the prey. The prey are waiting for an opportune time for one or two to be isolated from the herd. And at such time, they move in closely, they stalk. And the goal of these animals, a lion, tiger, something of the sort, to separate this young antelope or a zebra from the herd the goal is to bring them out into the remote places separate from the herd that they might take advantage upon them and feed on their very flesh and this is the picture that we see here in synopsis of what the psalmist has had to endure and those who endure alongside him not only that this picture of wilderness inhabited by wild beasts but also there's this imagery we recall from psalm 23 the shadow of death You've broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. And again, this poetic and descriptive language is dramatically illustrating the conditions, heart and soul and physical well-being of the people of God at this time. It's an ominous foreboding. It's as if a cloud has covered hope for the future. It's in the imposing inevitability 
figurative of extreme danger, as if darkness had settled in 24-7, so you could not tell night from day because of the extreme circumstances that those, again, in Psalm 44 had to endure. This is a documentation of the grievances. There's a catalog of atrocities here. But secondly, as we analyze the anguish of Psalm 44, we see that there is a kind of structure to this lament that when we reverse engineer it, if you will, brings us back to covenant truths. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. As you're turning there, I want you to keep in mind that this psalm has documented defeat in war, property plundered, injured and kill, injuries and killings, exiles, displacement, and slavery, exploitation, disgrace, slander, revile, and dishonor, cursing, mocking, and humiliation. This is the, the documentation of the grievances. In uh, Deuteronomy 28, we have the covenant promises and curses that are pronounced in relationship to the faithfulness of the people of God in His land that He had provided for them. And they, are, they go well back to back. That is to say, that which is a blessing, its negation becomes a curse. Security in the land is the blessing, whereas the curse is exile from the land. And so, towards the end of Deuteronomy, we read in summary some of the curses for those who are unfaithful to covenant. Verse 62, whereas, this is the proclamation of God to the people, consequences of sin, Whereas you are as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples from the end of the earth to the other, And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And notice the negation or the context of these curses and the context of Psalm 44. The psalm had opened with the refuge of the lineage and the posterity of the fathers. And then the psalm is lamenting that those who are with the psalmist in his appeal are separated Now, it seems, from the security of those circumstances and are driven away from the land of their fathers. And here in 65, and among these nations, we read read in Deuteronomy, among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you, Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at the evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Indeed, these circumstances well describe the shadow of death. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that, you, that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. For you have sold your people, it says in Psalm forty-four, twelve, for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. It is clear to me 
that in at least the back of the mind of the author of Psalm 44 is the Deuteronomy structure of blessings and cursings relative to the covenant faithfulness of the people of God. So as we see this lament unfolding, it's not, it's not a desperate uh, emotional regurgitation of everything he's feeling right now with no rhyme, reason, or order. Indeed, what it is is the catalog of lament that falls right in line with the Deuteronomy curses. He's saying, we are experiencing the very things that were prophesied we would experience if we were unfaithful in Deuteronomy 28. So why is this a surprise? Well, the third point under documentation of grievances is this. There is, to the author, a perplexing incompatibility between Deuteronomy 28, what we just read, and his experience. Why? Because he stands not guilty. Verses 17 and 18. He says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor our steps departed from your way. So the psalmist is, is, is admitting implicitly, I understand, I am to expect these circumstances if I, those I represent, had broken covenant with you. But the real anguish in these circumstances, the real source of anxiety is that this has come upon them not because they have been false to the covenant. And so this is perplexing to the author. What is this? How do I interpret this then? Verses 17 and 18, we see he has registered a plea of not guilty. He is not deserving of relationship to God's greater covenants at least the retributive justice he seems to be experiencing. Verses 20 and 21, he pleads for the scrutiny of the omniscient to look upon him. Almighty judge of the universe, search me and know me. Look inside, you have perfect knowledge. You know if I stand faithful to you or not. Verses 20 and 21, he says, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, which is an act of worship, we think lifting our hands to the Lord, If we had done so to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart. He not only states his case before the Lord and registers a plea of not guilty, but he also invites the scrutiny of the omniscient. He invites the sovereignty, the the omniscient God to take a look at his own soul and to examine him to see that he is not lying. Indeed, he stands in relationship to the covenant, in good standing. So we can see why he then is so perplexed. Why has God allowed this to happen? What is the reason? What could account for this perplexing incompatibility with the promises we thought we could rely on indefinitely if we remain in covenant and what we are experiencing right now? There is a question lingering in the air in this psalm. What is this foreign category of covenant experience? The answer is clear in the greater scope of Scripture. The psalmist is experiencing persecution. This is, this psalm indeed is proleptic of redemptive suffering. 
there is a reason for this suffering that goes beyond faithfulness or unfaithfulness to the covenant. God has other purposes for the suffering of His elect, indeed to witness and to testify to Him. This thought is just dawning on the author of this psalm. It's a proleptic psalm. That term proleptic means a representation or an assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished. In other words, this psalm foretells, it prophesies of a development in the future. When the author, Paul, Romans chapter 8, expresses confidence and joy in being counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name, there is a distinct difference in his tone, as we noted last week, to the tone of Psalm 44. What accounts for the difference? Well, it's revelation. Revelation of God's purposes in the suffering of His own. God has called His people at times of His choosing, according to His sovereign purposes, to endure the injustice of the sinful situation around Him in order that He might make His glory known as He witnesses through them to the world that their faith is stronger than the threat of death. That their confidence in the ultimate keeping power of God's steadfast love in eternal life is a stronger force than the threat or the benefit of life itself. God had, God had bound for Himself a covenant and a remnant of in covenant a remnant of people whose identity would transcend their temporal circumstances. This was a people who ultimately placed their faith in something eternal, so that the blessings of the covenant were not meant to be understood explicit or only exclusively in the temporal realm. This is the message of Psalm 44. Sometimes God calls His people to endure suffering, not on account of their own unfaithfulness, but on account of His calling for them to testify to what Christ has done through His suffering. Christ indeed did not deserve the highest of blasphemy to ever uh, admit such a thing, that Christ was guilty of the smallest jot or tittle of the law. Thus, every look of derision, every mocking glance, every skeptical decision, by the powers and authorities of the day, every false testimony, every lash on the back, every thorn in the brow, the spear in the side, every nail in a limb, every mocking jeer from the religious and the civil elite, every single one was an injustice. Yet God had purpose in that suffering. In the Old Covenant, through the testimony of one of the patriarchs, Joseph, he himself endured slavery, exile, abuse, imprisonment, false charges, disrepute, dishonor, and shame at the hand of authorities, people who called themselves friends, and basically a whole society and social structure who seemed to make it their aim to marginalize and abuse him and persecute him at every turn. Yet something 
gave Joseph courage. And something gave Joseph the ability to testify to the glory of God under those conditions. And God's sovereign power and glory was evident in his testimony as he used every single calumny against his servant to advance his kingdom. And we see in the life course of Joseph's testimony that that which his brothers meant for evil, lying to their father, staining his clothes with blood, selling him into slavery... The whole thing, they meant for evil, but God used for good. And the forces that killed Christ, the Sanhedrin, the kangaroo courts, the Roman government, the self-protecting Roman soldiers, and so on, all of them meant everything for evil. Yet God meant the death of Christ for ultimate good. There are atonement illusions even in this psalm. Notice with me the familiarity of this language in verse 11, Psalm 44, 11. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Does that language sound familiar? Again, listen. See if you hear between the lines overtures of redemptive glory. Verse 22, yet for your sake, For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, there's the famous messianic prophecy that includes a record prophetically of what the Messiah would suffer for God's name and for our salvation. And we read, In chapter 53, verse 6, All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On who? On Christ. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Do you notice in this psalm what the Messiah endured is falling in accordance in line with the pain, the suffering, the outcast, and the abuse that the psalmist had endured. He was cut off from the land. He experienced the oppression and the judgment of the transgressors and was taken away. He was buried in a grave. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief. But notice the difference. The difference is this sheep, as it were, when led to the slaughter, was silent. He opened not his mouth because Christ was the Word of God and had perfect knowledge of what indeed was going on And he submitted to the will of the Father. Because Christ did not open his mouth and was led as a sheep to the slaughter, when we suffer in this life, we can, because Christ was silent, open our mouth in prayer, praise, and appeal to God when we experience the injustice of abuse, persecution, slander, derision, scorn, defeat, property stolen, injury, 
death, exile, displacement, and slavery, exploitation, and so on. The atonement allusions on Psalm 44 are striking. There's whispers of redeeming value of suffering between the lines. There are whispers of the redeeming value of suffering between the lines. You see, the psalmist was wrestling. He thought there was no reason for this suffering, but indeed there was. Suffering in the light of its atoning purpose has redeeming value. And if it wasn't for the suffering of Christ, there, was no, there would be no atonement for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And what joy can we then count it to be included in the fellowship of His sufferings if God has chosen that as a sovereign means to proclaim that Christ is worth suffering for and that His suffering has value and that there is redeeming purpose when His own are called to endure the fire and the sword. This that was alluded to in Psalm 44 was explicitly prophesied in Isaiah 53 and explicitly fulfilled in Christ. There is also in Psalm 44, again, this proleptic, redemptive suffering, this foreshadowing, this development of what will be more obvious in the future by way of principle, why God's people suffer. We see atonement illusions, but we also see a sort of prototypical persecution that is an example going before of persecution. We see this clearly in verse 22. The psalmist says, Yet for your sake, those three words so important, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And those who are killed or regarded as sheep to be slaughtered under threat of any manner of persecution and abuse those who do so or endure such circumstances for the sake of the Lord are His persecuted church. They are those who are identifying with the bruised heel, if you will, of the woman's seed all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The Lord says in that gospel proclamation that also includes a prophecy of suffering that a distinct change will take place, yet there is hope sown into these words. There's a curse pronounced on Satan for what he has done. God says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, in verse 14, all the days of your life. And then we have this gospel promise. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here we see a delineation of two camps. Those who are in covenant with God, who are among the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, as it were. And then there are those, the seed of Satan, as it were. And there's tension between the two. Ultimately, we could ask this question. Should we consider it any surprise if we experience from the sons of Satan animosity as the children of God? No, it is no surprise. It was prophesied from the beginning. Secondly, we could ask the question, is it just gratuitous suffering that we must endure, or is there a purpose in it? Well, even here, if we can say that our suffering on account of our association with Christ is identifying with the seed of the woman who would one day 
His heel would be bruised, but would bruise the head of Satan. We can count it such a great privilege to join in the fellowship of that redemptive purpose of Christ's suffering. Thus, if we are called to endure anything akin to what he endured in this life, mockery, shame, abuse, again, cursing, humiliation, or hardship, famine, persecution, or sword, we can do so in New Covenant Revelation with the clarity of the great privilege that it represents. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 provides such an exclamation point of glory that we can place on Psalm 44. And again, the key here to the difference is the full revelation of the manifest Messiah, Christ, in time. On account of what He has revealed and on account of what He has done, the perspective of understanding is thrown wide open for those with eyes to see. We read these words earlier. Let's read them again in 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Listen to that phrase again. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now this provides clarity for the psalmist's question. He did not he didn't know why he was suffering. He said, I would understand it in as many words if it was on account for sin. Yet now the clarity of the reason for his suffering is illumined for all to see that it is indeed something gracious. What credit is it if you, uh, when you sin you are beaten and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What could possibly change in the consciousness of the redeemed and the people of God to count it a gracious thing to endure what is described in Psalm 44. A gracious thing when we're mindful of God, when we endure suffering unjustly. What is the difference here? Verse 21 explains. For to this you have been called. What have we been called to? Suffer for Christ's name. We've been called to endure for His glory. We've been called to be the persecuted for His name's sake. Because, it says in verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in examples so that you might follow in His steps. What a privilege. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, verse 23, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So there's a prototype of persecution in Psalm 44. It's revealed in pristine clarity in 1 Peter 2. Not only... Is it not, it, should it not be perplexing to us that we endure circumstances like the psalmist endured, but they are indeed a privilege and a joy when rightly viewed in the great context of biblical revelation. Why? Because it is a privilege to be associated 
with the redemptive work of Christ to suffer for his name and to witness to his glory. I read to you Genesis 4, 8 through 10, where the blood of Abel is described as crying out from the ground. Abel, as a representative martyr, as a prototype of the persecuted, is referred to again in New Covenant Revelation. And for this reference, I'll turn you to Hebrews chapter 11. He's the first one listed here in what we sometimes call the Hall of Faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. In God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Though Abel died a premature death at the unjust hand of a murderous brother, he still speaks. Abel's blood is crying with a testimony and a witness of faith. Faith that's stronger than death. Faith that endures under any and all circumstances. Abel was the first martyr witness to the truth that when God changes a heart, no devil in hell, no circumstance in life, and no abuse by all of our enemies on every si- any side can tear us apart from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. If you study that word witness, it actually comes from the Greek martus. Martyr and Greek are the same word in the New Testament. The context is where we derive the definition. One who bears witness to the truth and suffers death in the cause of Christ. This was Abel. He still spoke though he died. This was the persecuting church today who speak to us though they die. This was the testimony of Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7. Though he died, his words still speak. We indeed read his story. We cannot find who is the author of Psalm 44. But though he is dead and though we don't know his name, his words still speak. We see later on through the scriptures, the testimony of martyrdom is a theme that is echoed. It recurs in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. There's an echo of the martyrs who cry out, speaking, calling out for justice. We'll read that a little later. There are those in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that are called by Christ in the Great Commission to be my witnesses in Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And one of the first records, one of these first witnesses was then Stephen himself who gave his life as a witness. And though he died, he still speaks and his blood cries out for justice. And it also cries that Christ is worth dying for and suffering for his namesake is a privilege we all ought to count as joy and gracious. Finally, this morning, analyzing the anguish of Psalm 44, we've considered the documentation of grievances. We've considered a foreshadowing of redemptive suffering. And finally, let's consider co-regency in judgment. The psalm shares, this psalm shares, 
the same covenantal standing as the imprecatory prayers. Imprecatory means to call down judgment or a curse. There's language in the Psalms that's really foreign to us. We're used to a kind of uh, ridiculously co-opted, stupid gospel that says love, 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 love. No judgment, no justice, no fear. God loves everybody all the time, the same way, all the time, everywhere. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Love, 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 love. I've asked this question before, but what do we call a husband who loves every woman the same way, at the same place, in the same time, everywhere, all the time? What do we call him? We call him a philanderer. We call him someone that is not bound by covenant love to his own, to his bride, but someone who is an illicit, explicit a philanderer, as I say, someone who has committed adultery, fornication, and the like is living an illicit lifestyle of perversion. God's love is specific, and it is bound by covenant. And those who are bound in covenant with him share something with him that is staggering. It's called co-regency, or ruling and reigning with him, indeed, even in judgment. The blood of Christ purchases for you standing alongside Christ such that you now rule and reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13 describes this shared authority. We have now been elevated to a state of ruling and reigning with Christ. This is a staggering thought indeed. It is one that ought to fill us with encouragement, but also with sobriety. In the Psalms, in the Scriptures, we are given the delegated role of proclaiming the Word of God as His ambassadors and His agents such that the Bible describes our position as co-regency, that is, ruling alongside Christ. This, indeed, is unbelievable in some sense. It's staggering to our mind. In Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, Get my uh, reference correct. Second Timothy two verses eight and following. To read, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Notice in the context of this declaration is Paul, the suffering, the persecuted who says that his testimony is not bound. Even though he suffers, he still speaks because the word of God will be proclaimed. Verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for, verse 11, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithful, he remains faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Revelation chapter 20, these themes are again brought to the forefront with prominence and dramatic clarity. Revelation 24, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years rendered. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Our estate in Christ as his ambassadors includes a shared authority with him. Thus, the Psalms declare, Revelation declares, Paul declares, the whole Bible in fact, that there is a covenantal standing that places us alongside Christ in judgment, such that what we incur and by way of abuse in this life will one day be subpoenaed by the Lord of glory to stand witness and testimony against those who are antichrist who would abuse us. And on the basis of that testimony, they will be sent to hell if they do not repent. Abel's echo. Awake, verse 23. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. The psalmist is speaking rightly with the kind of authority that good standing and covenant gives him. Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the, to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The author is calling out with Abel's blood for justice. Revelation 6, verse 9 and 10. The final verse I want to lead you to this morning. Again, this theme in the context of the persecution that's so prevalent in the book of Revelation, this theme of crying out for judgment and standing with the Lord in defense of His great name and justice is recounted for us in verse 9. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the sounds of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That's that word, martyrs, witness. Martyr, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In closing this morning, there's a third person application perhaps for us. Today, we do not experience the same abuse in our own person that we see necessarily described here in Psalm 44, Revelation, in Paul's letters. But, there is nevertheless an application that yet remains for us. Do we cry out for the justice of the Lord to avenge the death of those who have been killed serving Him in lands right now that are awash with violence on account of Christ's name? The United Nations, no political friend of Christianity, as you know, has officially stated, and this is significant, that Christians today are by far and away the most persecuted faction in our world. Of all the faiths that are enduring something by way of war and violence simply for what they believe, Christians in this world today are being displaced, killed, destroyed, separated, enslaved, their property plundered, injured, exiled, 
exploited, disgraced, slandered, reviled, dishonored, cursed, mocked, and humiliated by the thousands upon thousands. The casualty of a convergence of evil in our land or in our globe today has made for a perfect storm, if you will, of persecution in the Middle East. For instance, what are we to do about this? What are we to do? Well, the Bible would certainly have us at least stand in solidarity and prayer, recognizing that the justice of God demands vengeance for their blood that cries out from Iraq, that cries out from Afghanistan, that cries out from Iran, that cries out from North Korea. In the late 1800s, R.J. Thomas was a Welsh missionary with a burden for the kingdom of Korea. An American ship was heading north, the river, the capital, Pyongyang, in hopes of establishing trade with this nation. A man had a heart for the Lord and a burden for the lost. R.J. Thomas loaded himself with Bibles, boarded the ship, and headed up the river. The ship was met with adversity. It was set on fire. The crew waded ashore. And as Thomas, this missionary, loaded with his Bibles, sought refuge for the bank, before he could speak, a club swung with murderous force and dashed his head in, but his killer noticed that he had emerged with books. So this Korean soldier picked up the books, these Bibles, dried them off, separated the leaves, and saw that they were nicely printed. He could not read, but he decided to paper the outside of his house, his compound, with these pages, as was the custom of the time. Imagine his astonishment when he returned from the fields a few weeks later to find a clutch of scholars earnestly reading his walls. One of these scholars became a Christian by reading a gospel portion plastered on the wall. A generation later, his nephew assisted in the first translation of the New Testament into Korean. Later on, his missionary work proved successful, and many, many people were won to Christ. This missionary, who had died on the shore without successfully ever even preaching the gospel with his own lips, seeing a single convert won to Christ, never lived to see the fruit of his labor or his prayers for the Korean people. He died, his life's purpose unfulfilled, his potential unrealized, and so on and so forth, but not so from the eyes of heaven. It's an excerpt I want to thank Kari for sending to me from Ronald McMillan, Faith That Endures. How many stories do you suppose like that has God ordained in history where those suffered for His name's sake in the remote corners of the earth were used against all odds and His sovereignty and God's perfect timing and way to bring the message of the gospel to the remotest corners of the earth? And how many of us do you suppose are the product of their faithfulness? How many of us, do you suppose, have martyrs in our spiritual lineage? You know, the author of Psalm 44, I mentioned we don't know who he was, but as if the pages of what he wrote were plastered there on the wall for us to see. And we go to the scriptures, and again, we don't know who the missionary was, but we read those pages, and we see testimony to the sovereignty of God. How ought we to respond? We ought to respond thankfulness 
overflowing joy, worship, and zeal to such a high degree that if our life was required of us in the same way, we would freely lay it down and count it all joy. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ this morning across this globe. We repent because, speaking for myself and any others who can join me in this confession, we repent because in our convenience and our selfishness and our pampered lifestyle, we care more about dinner plans than the fact that there are those who are famished and exiled and slaughtered for their faith by the sword of the Islamic invader and by the edict of a usurpatious government and by the rejection and disowning, in some cases, of their own family members. This morning we stand with them in prayer, and we pray that your justice, Lord, would be visited upon those who are responsible for these ills. We pray that their captors, we pray that their assailants might repent and place their faith and trust in Christ, but if they do not, let them be destroyed, that they may not wreak havoc on your church and on your body anymore. We pray, Lord Jesus, that the blood of these martyrs would cry out as a witness and a testimony that Jesus Christ has died and He gave His blood as an atonement even for their captors. We pray that the gospel fires would be fueled by the blood of the martyrs. We pray for for repentance in the apostate West. We pray, Lord, that your word would be sufficient to move us to our knees, that we might cry out, Lord, in anguish and repentance for not taking seriously the privilege and the call of your great name. Lord, whether you call us to suffer or not, quicken within us a heart of steel resolve to your covenant so that if our life was required of us today or if it was illegal for us to meet next week, we'd be willing to risk our lives for your great name, O God. Father, the blood of the martyrs that have gone before oftentimes shame us when we complain about the trivial inconveniences of our pampered life. We repent. I pray, Lord, that your word would bring objectivity to our eyes, that you would cause our hearts to be moved in anguish and in prayer, that we would stand with our brothers and sisters, Lord Jesus. And if you should call any of us to go, I pray that the answer would be, Here I am, Lord, send me. And I pray, Lord, that if we were called to give our own lives and spill our own blood for your name's sake, we would count it a privilege and a grace. I pray that our, we would echo, Lord Jesus, the testimony of your apostles who stood before the authorities of their day and said, we must serve the Lord. You decide for yourselves what you will do with us. We must, we can't but proclaim Christ. Father, we repent because too often... Our selfishness prevents us from proclaiming Christ. And the enemy has too easily shut us up. He hasn't needed to use estrangement, mockery, and abuse in the sword. He's only needed to use our own flesh. We repent, Lord, this morning if we fall into the indictment of any of these probing, Lord, reaches of your word into the recesses of our own heart. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. I pray that you would quicken in our hearts such a zeal, such a love, such a patience, Lord, such a commitment to you. 
that we could be, Lord, in good company one day, joining praise and worship with the martyrs that have preceded us before the throne of grace, casting our crown before the Lamb that was slain, worshiping for eternity, singing, Holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.